Hey everybody, thank you so much for joining me on the Luke Berger podcast. Today we're going to talk a little bit about how God wants you to be seen. Okay, so today we're going to talk about how God wants you to be seen and how God wants you to act. And we'll just go ahead and, and cut right to it. And then we'll take some time to talk about what exactly that means and some different aspects of it. So God wants you to act like him. God wants you to be seen like him. And so we've got different passages from the Bible, a lot of them really, that let us know that that's what God wants. He wants you to be like him. Romans 8.14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And so in, in the Greek, that word that's translated sons, some translations translate it as children, trying to take like the... Um, the masculinity out of it and includes sons and daughters. But that word in the Greek doesn't just mean a, a child, because there's another word that's translated children. This particular word, translated sons, isn't just an offspring, but it's one who resembles their parent. They, they, you can tell, oh, that's so-and-so's child, that's so-and-so's son. I can tell because they have the same actions, the same mannerisms. They talk the same. They look the same. So it's one that is, is being shaped and molded in the likeness of, in this case, their, their father. So as many as are led by the Spirit of God, when it's God's Spirit leading you, guiding you, prompting you in what to say, prompting you in what, what decision to make, these are the sons, these are the ones that resemble act like, man, I can tell that's so-and-so's child, the sons of, of God. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, it says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul's saying, it's not even my life. Well, whose life is it? That what he, what's really being lived out through him is the life of Jesus. And then what he says next is important and why it's important for us to talk about this. It's no longer my life. It's the life of Jesus. Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, how does he live it? I live it by faith. So he's living by faith. It's no longer me. It's no longer Luke. Now it's the life of Jesus being lived through me. But if, if you don't have faith in that, it's not going to happen. And faith comes by knowing what God's word says, by believing the word of God, by building that into us, that, that it's the life of Jesus being lived through, through you. God wants to manifest himself through you. Now, there are certain aspects of God's character and likeness that we are more comfortable a lot of times accepting God wants me to be like him in this area, and then some that are less comfortable. I'll give you some of the, the ones that we're more comfortable with first. God, God wants us to be holy, 1 Peter 1.15, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. The next verse goes on to say, as the scriptures say, be holy as I am, as I am holy. So God wants you to be holy. We're comfortable with that be good, don't do bad things, we should be holy. Why? Because God is holy, and he wants his character, he wants his likeness being lived out through your life. John 13, 34 says, this is Jesus speaking, he says, so now I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other just as I have loved you, 
you should love each other. We're supposed to be loving, right? Why are we supposed to be loving? Jesus says, love the same way that I loved. We should love because Jesus first loved us. John, uh, 1 John 4.12, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. So that's when people get to experience God. When? Because he's living in us and it's his likeness coming out through us and that's how people get to experience experience the, 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 the character of God. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for one another. So sacrificial, giving, that's how we're supposed to be. I'm supposed to be willing to sacrifice for someone else's benefit. I should be a giver and be generous. Why? Because that's, that's how God is. That's how the Father is. I'll give you one more. Ephesians 4.32 says, instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. So we should be forgiving. We should be merciful. We should be gentle. We should be tender-hearted. Why? Because that's the way that's the way God is. So we are aware, for the most part, of those instructions. I should be like God in these categories. But a mistake that the church can make in a religious mindset is that we accept those and then ignore other truths that actually empower us to succeed in carrying out those requirements, that I'm truly merciful, that I'm truly giving, that I'm truly sacrificial, that I'm truly holy, that I'm truly walking in love. There are other characteristics of God that empower me and enable me to do those. And so what happens a lot of times in religion is we accept the requirements and then we reject the empowerments the likeness of God where I, I have strength and power and, a, and authority that, that we sometimes downplay that those aspects of God being lived out in our lives. And that's something that Paul told Timothy was going to happen. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, he's, he's talking about people in the last days and he's warning warning them there's going to be people like this watch out in the last days there's going to be people that, that are lovers of themselves and haters of you know disobey their parents and all these different things and so that's what, what he's talking about in context in verse 5 talking about these people he says having a form of godliness but denying its power from such people turn away the new living reads it like like this they will act religious but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. They'll act religious. They'll agree, yes, we should be holy. We should behave a certain way. We should be merciful. We should be kind. We should be gentle. They will accept all those requirements and then reject the power that would actually enable them to be to be godly, to actually do the things that they accept the requirements of, of us doing. In the book of Philemon, starting in verse 4, it says this, I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith, which you have towards the Lord Jesus and towards all the saints, that the communication of your faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. So he's talking about the way that he prays for these people. And part of that prayer is that they would be able to communicate 
not just speak, but actually live out. They would be able to convey their, their faith. So what we believe about God's word, our, our doctrine, the things that we believe to be true, that it, there'd be communication, not just on the inside, I've got these, this list of stuff that I believe, but it's being communicated. It's being lived out. It's being revealed and shown. It says that that would happen effectually, or another translation says effectively. And then he says how that's done. That, that the communication of your faith may become effective or effectual how? By the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. When we're born again, what God puts on the inside of us is not just a list of requirements, but his nature. The Bible says that we have the divine nature, his DNA, the spirit of God. I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. But if I'm only acknowledging part of that, then according to this passage of scripture, I'm not going to be effective. That a way that you can make somebody ineffective, unable to live out and communicate and really, really display who they're supposed to be as a follower of Jesus is to get them to not acknowledge every good thing. That if I want to be effective, if you want to be effectual at the communication, living out, conveying your faith, how, how do we need to do it? By the acknowledgement, not of some of the good things, of every good thing that is in you in Christ Jesus. And so when it comes to religious thinking, again, re that religious mindset will accept requirements and reject empowerments. We, we need to be holy. We need to be loving. We need to be forgiving. But you start talking about being powerful, being mighty, being strong, um, having authority. There's power in your words. You're anointed then they start shying away from those kinds of things. And that's the way that it's always been with a religious mindset. Jesus dealt with that exact same way of thinking when he talked about the religious people when he was on earth ministering. Matthew 23, verse 4 is an example. Jesus says this, they crush people, talking about religious leaders, they crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. What's he talking about? They keep on adding requirements. And in the verses right before that, he says, you, you should say, you should do what they say, just don't do what they do. Just don't act like them. So they're talking about requirements of the word of God. They, they would accept all the requirements and pile them on people, but they never provide any help encouragement, strength, no empowerments, just requirements. That religion wants people weighed down, helpless, crawling through life, and it gets upset or offended with empowerment, empowering talk. And money is, it's a great example because you can really see it played out when you talk about money and abundance and prosperity. So just using money as an example. If you talk about prosperity and talk about abundance, in some Christian circles, that's enough to get people very upset, very angry. Uh, if you are a minister and you start talking about that, you can become disliked very quickly. They might love you. They think you're great. You start talking about prosperity, and all of a sudden now, now you're, you're an enemy. It's like a, a trigger word, which that, that's not logical thinking. It doesn't make sense because prospering is a good thing. Just outside of the Bible, outside of the church, people just, common sense, it's better to prosper than to have poverty. 
It's better to be able to have abundance than not enough. It's a good thing to prosper. That it's that's a pleasant word. It's a nice word. So outside of religious circles, that that is a good thing. People just understand to prosper is you're doing good. And then even in the Bible, the Bible speaks very highly of prosperity, that it's a good thing, that God blesses with prosperity, that having more than enough is a blessing, not having enough is a curse. Psalm 35 says, may they say continually, the Lord be magnified who delights or takes pleasure in the prosperity of his servants. I can't think of other things that the Bible says to say it, just keep saying it, keep on talking about it, keep on saying what? God delights, he really likes it, it pleases him when his servants are prospering. So it it is a good thing, but it's upsetting and it doesn't make sense. Why? Because it's a form of empowerment, it brings strength, it brings ability, and that religious mindset doesn't like empowerment, it just likes requirement. So a religious mindset will still try to convince you, yes, you need to feed hungry people, clothe naked people, take care of less fortunate people, send missionaries, uh, do all of the things, but they will deny the ability to have resources and overflow that would enable and empower all of those things. So money is just an example, but it's the same thing with authority, with where, where that we're seated with Christ in heavenly places, where you are positionally, spiritually, being a true child of God, the power that you have, the identity that you have, the anointing that you carry. So all the requirements, none of the empowerments. John chapter 5 is a story where there's a man laying by the pool on a mat and this pool, the angels would come and stir up the water and the first one in would get healed and Jesus comes to this guy who's been laying there for years and years and says, do you want, do you want to be made well? And he says, I have, how can I? I have no one to help me in the water. And so they have this exchange. Jesus tells him, pick up your mat and walk. He's, he's miraculously healed. But the religious people were upset because this miracle took place on, on the Sabbath day. And so uh, they're upset that he's carrying his mat, doing work on the Sabbath day, which I'm sure if you've been laying on that mat for 38 years or whatever it was in John chapter 5, that carrying that mat probably didn't seem like work to him. It was probably a joy for him to be able to, to carry that mat. But the religious people saw it as work. He was just responding to what Jesus had done. Get up and walk and carry, take up your mat and walk. Jesus could have said, get up and walk, leave the mat behind. He he was just doing what Jesus told him to do. It probably didn't feel like work at all. But religious thinking, again, twists things around and, and starts to make it feel like work. It's a burden to do what God's instructed us to do. That that's That's backwards. It's a joy to do what God's called us to do. So you've got to guard your heart and not allow the requirements that God gives us, the instructions that he's given us, the way that you serve, serving in your church, serving in your family, to become a drudgery and work. Religious thinking likes to act put upon, oh, it's so difficult, I've got to do this. That, that's when you, You've got to focus on what God has done for you, how he set you free, made you new, brought, brought you into his family. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, his, his commands, it's not burdensome. 
It's not, it's not a pain to serve the Lord. It's a delight. It's a joy. It's an honor to serve the Lord. And it's religious thinking that starts to try to, if, if those religious people had been effective in the story, they're not effective. That guy doesn't buy into it. But if they would have been effective, they would have convinced those guy, that guy that, yeah, this is, why would I carry this mat? It's hard to carry this mat. Why am I doing this work? Jesus is trying to make me do all this work. That, that, that was their perspective instead of what a joy to be able to carry this mat. But as you read through that story, they get upset because it's on the Sabbath day that this miracle has occurred. In verse 16, it says, So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for, break, for breaking the Sabbath rules. But Jesus replied, My father is always working, and so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his father, thereby making himself equal with God. It says that they tried all the harder to kill him. They're, they're, they're like losing their minds now. They wanted him dead before, but now they've just upped the ante. Now we've got to do whatever it takes. We've got to kill this man. Why? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He broke the Sabbath. Okay, yep. Yeah, that's one thing. But what really, what really put them over the edge was that he called God his father. Now, what was the connotation of referring to God as their father? It says, he called God his father, thereby, that they understood something. Because they called, he called God his father, it meant something. Thereby making himself equal with God. There's a lot of people that would consider themselves a child of God. If you've accepted Jesus, the Bible says you're, you're, you're a child of God. Not everyone's a child of God. Everyone's God's creation. You become a part of the family by accepting Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 12 says that those who believe in him, he gave them the right, the privilege to become children of God. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1 says that anyone who believes in Jesus, that they become a child of God. So if you've done that, you're a son, you're a daughter, and a lot of us are comfortable with that. I'm God's child, but we don't accept the full connotation or the full meaning. These people, even though they hated it, they hated it. They at least understood what it meant. Some of us, we don't hate it, but we also don't understand what it means. They called God his father, thereby making himself equal with God. If, if God is my father, if he is your father, that's not just isolated and concerns God. That also changes my situation. You know, earthly speaking... If I were to do some kind of DNA test with my father, do the Ancestry.com thing or, or, or whatever, and it turns out that my dad was something, what, what, what would that mean to me? If it turned out my dad is Irish, what's that mean? I'm Irish. If it turned out my dad is Chinese, what does that mean for me? It means, it means I'm Chinese. Whatever he is, it doesn't just mean something for him. By nature of the relationship that he's the father, I'm the son, whatever he is, that's what I am too. And so when we say we're children of God, it doesn't do much good just to have the title and then have no understanding what does it mean to be his son, his daughter. Because whatever the father is, that's what you are too. Whatever's in him is in you. Whatever your dad is, that's what you are too. So what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to have God as your father. It, you have to go to church. Uh, you need to tithe. 
Um, you shouldn't have sex outside of marriage. It, all of those things, but there's more to it than that. Because he's your father, there's more in you. There's more in you than just requirements. There's his nature. There his, there's his DNA. And we sell it short when we just list it as a few hoops that we have to jump through. Uh, because I'm a Christian, it means um, that I shouldn't get drunk. Because I'm a Christian, it means that... Okay, it means that, but it means so much more than that. And if only, if we only accept certain aspects and not the others again in that philip uh, in the book of philemon that were effective how not by acknowledging some of the things but by the acknowledgement of every good thing that is in you there's more in you there's more on you than just that you're supposed to tithe and not get drunk and not sleep around there's more on you than that there's more on the inside and we've got to acknowledge every good thing and if we don't what can happen is we can come become bitter we can become frustrated we can lose our, our joy. And it, I'll give you an example of that happening in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. He, he asks his father for, give me my inheritance now, moves away to a distant land, squanders his money, uh, lives it up for a while, but then there's a famine, loses his money, which causes him to lose his friends. He's just in a bad, uh, a bad situation. He's feeding pigs, jealous of what they're eating. Finally, he decides to come home. When he comes home, his father embraces him. It's this beautiful story, but it's not just a story about one son, because this guy has two sons. And so when the younger son returns home after making a, a mess of things, let me read to you from Luke chapter 15, verse 28. So they killed the fatted calf. They're having a party. There's music. There's dancing. The older brother comes. He wants nothing to do with it. Verse 28 says, The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing that you told me to do. And in all that time, you never even gave me one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back, after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fatted calf. What was he saying? I I've worked hard for you. I've had all these requirements. Look at everything that I've done for you. All that I've done to try to honor you, please you. Uh, I've slaved away for you. And in all that time, I didn't get anything. There, it was all requirements, no empowerments. I didn't even get a goat to nourish me, nothing to bring me joy, nothing to celebrate. Uh, all it was was give, 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 and I never got anything out of it. He's only acknowledging one part of the relationship because look what the father says next. His father said to him, look, dear son, You've always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. The son was blind or ignorant about a humongous component of his relationship with his father, and his dad says, son, son, everything that I have, it's all yours. You could have been enjoying this the entire time. If you wanted a goat, those goats are just as much yours as they are mine. Why? Because there was a father's son. You know, that's what the Bible says about us. In Romans chapter 8, it says, if you know Jesus, you are a co-heir. A co-heir, that means what belongs to him belongs to you. 
We won't take time to go there, but if you read through Romans chapter 12, when it talks about you've come to Mount Zion, it says you've come to the church of the firstborn. It's easy to read that and understand firstborn just talking about Jesus. But in the Greek, that, that term firstborn is actually plural. Well, how, how can there be more than one firstborn? Just by definition, there's one, one, one is born first. Well, something happens in the new birth when you become a new creature, the church, the assembly, the gathering together of all the firstborn ones, that you've got the rights of the firstborn. You're not some lesser class citizen in the family of God. God, God sees you. You have the inheritance, the rights, the privileges of being a firstborn child in the kingdom of God. Romans chapter 5, verse 17 says, For if by one man's offense death reigned, through the one, much more those who receive an abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. That's what God wants you to receive, an abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. It's talking, that, that's salvation in its fullest experience, that we've received the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. Now, what does it say about people who do that? That they will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ, that they'll reign. Weymouth's translation says that they'll reign as kings in life through the one individual, Jesus Christ. That they'll reign. When will we reign? After this life is over and someday, no, they'll reign when? In, in this realm, in life, they'll reign in life. First Peter chapter 2 talks about that we are a royal priesthood. So you have these words, we're supposed to reign as kings. We are a royal priesthood, that we are kingly priests and priestly kings, that we represent people to God and God to people, that we stand in this incredible, like Melchizedek, he was a king and a priest who's likened to Jesus, a type of Jesus, and here it's saying we've got a similar role. Now, religion will try to add all the requirements and then remove this, these wonderful truths about who you are as a son and as a daughter. And you've got to see yourself, not through the lens of religion, but look into the mirror of God's word. What does this say about you? Understand who you are because you'll behave according to who you understand yourself to be. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, David shows up to visit the army of Israel, bringing some supplies from his father, comes to visit his brothers. Goliath has been coming out and challenging the army for 40 days. A couple of times a day, he'll come out and taunt them. You know, when he was willing to go and take on Goliath and ended up killing him, cutting his head off, he did that not because he saw himself as a brave kid, as a brave shepherd boy, that's not what enabled him to step in to that battlefield and take on Goliath. That's not how he saw himself. I'm like a really brave shepherd kid, and that, so I'm going to do this. Because in the previous chapter, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, what happened? He was, he was out minding his own business, taking care of his sheep. There was a get-together at the house that he wasn't invited to. The prophet Samuel was coming over. But you know the story, the prophet starts going down the line of Jesse's sons and gets to the end, none of these are the one that God said, you're going to anoint him as the king of Israel. So he sends for, you have any other kids? Yeah, the one, one that's out with the sheep. They send for him. God tells him, this is the one. He anoints him as king of Israel. He's anointed, pour oil on him. Samuel lays hands on him. 
tells him, you, God has anointed you. you. You are king. You are to reign in Israel. So from that point forward, David, David was walking in faith, not believing and walking according to the way that other people saw him, his own brothers were upset when he started talking about taking on Goliath. His father apparently didn't see him as king. He's sending him as a delivery boy to, to deliver cheese and bread to his brothers. His brothers just saw him as the, the youngest brother, the shepherd boy. He didn't allow any of those things to affect the way he saw himself. The, it didn't look like it in the natural. He didn't wait to have a crown on his head and to be sitting in a throne to finally see himself as king. From the moment that oil touched his head and he heard the, the voice of God saying, I'm anointing you to reign in this life, he started to live like it. So he walked in, onto that battlefield, not as I'm, a, I'm like a really gutsy shepherd guy. I have an anointing on my life. I am to reign as a king. So he was starting to behave and think and act like someone who was supposed to reign as a king. I'm the king of Israel. If anyone should go out and take care of this problem, that's why I'm here. I showed up just in the nick of time because there's someone in this crowd today that has an anointing to reign and to take care of problems that would come against God's people. David didn't see it as King Saul. He saw it as, as himself. And so you have an anointing as well. There's things that God has said about you. It might not like, look like it in the natural. You don't have to wait until you have a crown and people acknowledge it. You are to reign in this life as a king. God wants to manifest his nature because you're his son, because you're his daughter. He wants to manifest his nature through you. And that's the only way people will get a taste of God's presence, God's anointing, God's power, is if the people of God, the sons and daughters of God, will actually see themselves not according to religion or what people think is appropriate or how they've always been talked about, how they see themselves. I'm sure David could look at himself and say, I'm, I'm no king. He had all the reasons in the world toting cheese and bread to visit his brothers to say, man, this is, this is so far from being a king. He didn't allow that stuff to keep him from behaving and acting and winning victories from a position of, I am anointed, I am empowered. The presence of God is with me. There's a call on my life to behave this way. And so he started behaving according to that anointing. That's what you and I are going to do. Not wait until it looks like it in the natural, but just accept who God wants us to be, how he wants us to behave, how he wants us to be viewed, because that's the way he views you. And we want to walk according to that, that reality. I want to challenge you to do that, to begin to get passages of scripture that describe who you are in Christ as a son, as a daughter. Understand what it means that you call God your father. It means you make yourself equal. You put yourself in a different realm, a different way of existing, a different kind of being. If you're going to call God your father, then you've left the limits of just being a human. And that's what upset the religious people, but it's also what enabled Jesus to function as a son. And that's what it's going to allow you to do as well. Let me pray for you. Father, we love you. I thank you for each person that's listening, watching this podcast and God, I pray for fresh revelation, Lord, strength and grace to behave the way that you want us to behave, to be seen, to be viewed, to operate in this life, not just as, as human beings, but as sons and daughters of the Most High God. Father, let this truth settle down in their heart and take root and produce fruit 30, 60, 100 fold what's been planted. Lord, we give you glory and honor and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Listen, if you wouldn't mind taking a moment just to share this, to, to repost it, to subscribe, like, 
any of those things would be a huge help. Thanks again for, for joining me, and I'll talk to you again next time on the Luke Ruger Podcast.